0: Kirk Citron is a longtime friend and collaborator of Long Now's. Um, we always appreciate his keen sense of what matters, and really there's no better way to start off the year than getting the long news from Kirk Citron. The conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world.
1: So, here's a news story you might have seen this past August. Dozens feared dead in blasts at Chinese ports. It was a catastrophe that wiped out a big chunk of a modern city. And if something like that can happen, it makes me wonder, how many of you think it's likely that global civilization will collapse in this century? And how many of you think it's likely that humanity will go extinct in this century? So we get a couple. Across the U.S., This is how many people agree. Almost three out of five of your neighbors go through their days expecting the apocalypse. On the other hand, how many of you think the world's getting better? Ah, we've got some optimists in the room. According to a survey last month, in China, 41% agree with you, despite collapsing cities. But in the U.S., it's only 6%. So the question is, where's this pessimism coming from? And I'll be arguing that a lot of it comes from paying too much attention to the news. Because if you follow the news every day, you can only come to one conclusion about where we're headed. (laughs) As long as the media convinces you we're headed to hell in a handbasket, you're primed to keep reading, keep watching, keep tuning in. So I'm here to report the news gets almost everything wrong. The most important stories almost never make it to the front page. Because what the media doesn't want you to know is this. Things are better than you think. In the next 45 minutes or so, I hope to change how you see the news, change what you pay attention to when you read a newspaper or watch TV or scan your Twitter feed. I'd like to suggest that you start looking at the news through a long now filter. Redirecting your attention to the long news. Trying to find news stories that might matter 50 or 100 or 10,000 years from now. Because if you start to look at the news that way, you start to see we aren't really headed to hell. In fact, I'll be talking about nine trends that suggest the opposite. And then after that, there's going to be some time for questions. So let's begin with a quick news quiz. Do you know what happened on December 7th, 1941? Go ahead, shout it out, Pearl Harbor. Harbor. November 22, 1963, Kennedy. Kennedy. September 11, 2001. (laughs) How about March 8, 2014? I'll give you a hint, it was the biggest news story of the year. It was an airplane crash that killed 239 people and it got a huge amount of news coverage. I'm gonna show how the New York Times covered it because they're less sensationalist than most. Here's day two, day three, day four. Look at how much of the front page they devote to the story. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it wasn't a tragedy. If you had family members on board, it would change your life forever. But for the rest of us, was this really the most important story in the world for more than a week? Was it really the most important news story of the year? It was on the front page for 10 days, so the question is, why? Do you have any ideas? Sells papers. Sells papers. Fear. Fear. Mystery. That's what I think. I think it, it, it was surprising. It was a mystery story. Where'd the plane go? Was there a conspiracy? And there is another reason, which is flying is number seven on the list of top 10 fears. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are at least a little bit afraid when you get on a plane? So that's the beginning of my argument. If you believe what you see in the daily news, flying is terrifying. What's the long news? The long news is that 2014 was the safest year ever for airlines, with the fewest crashes in the history of air travel. This is one day's plane flights in the US. You'll notice that none of them crashed. (laughs) The blue line is the number of passengers. Compared to the 1970s, there are 10 times as many, and the number of deaths is one-fifth what it was. In other words, flying is 50 times safer than it was 40 years ago. But the media won't miss an airplane story. This past March, a plane skidded off a runway at LaGuardia. There were a few minor injuries, but nobody was seriously hurt. And yet it made the front page of the New York Times. Even though the real story was, nothing happened. Move along, folks. And then a few weeks later, there was another plane crash, this time in Europe. And that day, Chris Anderson from the TED conference tweeted, 150,000 people die each day, but if 100 die in an airplane, it hijacks world's attention for weeks. Here we go again. And he was right. Again, it was on the front page for more than a week. Then there it was again on day 25. And then on the front page of the Wall Street Journal 43 days after it happened. Okay, let's move on from plane crashes. Let's look at another story from a year earlier, April 15, 2013. Do you remember this one? Again, the biggest news story of the year. It was a tragedy that killed three people and injured 264. Now, I'm gonna ask you to imagine two scenarios. First, you're at the finish line. You see the explosion, you see the aftermath, you watch as they take people to the hospital. Scenario two, you're at home watching the story on TV, you get sucked in, as we so often do, and over the next days, you watch the coverage for about six hours. Now I ask, between those two scenarios, who was more traumatized, people at the finish line or people watching on TV? From my argument, you, can, you might guess at the answer, but who thinks it was A? Who thinks it was B? That's the crazy thing. It was indeed B. People who were at home watching TV were nine times more likely to report acute stress watching the news was more, di- more disturbing than being there. So why did this story get so much coverage? Do you have any ideas about this one? Terror. Terrorism, fear of terrorism. I'd agree, fear of terrorism, which is really a subset of a deeper fear. Fear of dying, which is number two on the list of top 10 fears. By the way, fear number one is what I'm doing right now, public speaking. <laughs> So what's the long news? Here are things more likely to kill you than terrorism. You have a 1 in 84 chance of dying in a car crash during your lifetime. This is your risk of killing yourself. This is your lifetime risk of dying from poison or dying in a fall, and so on, and so on. Yes, planes do sometimes crash, not very often. There are lots and lots of ways to die. This is your lifetime risk of getting killed by a coconut or struck by lightning, or getting caught in a fire, tipping over a bookshelf or a TV set can kill you, or trying to get your soda out of a vending machine, or taking a selfie. (laughs) This is your risk of being attacked by a shark, but it probably won't kill you. Only one out of five shark attacks is fatal. And what's your lifetime risk of dying in a terrorist attack? It's one in 20 million. You're 4,000 times more likely to die in one of those very rare plane crashes, and 240,000 times more likely to die in a car crash. Around the world, terrorism causes less than 2% of violent deaths. And violent deaths, while they get all the media coverage, are basically insignificant. Violence accounts for just 1.1% of deaths. Heart disease, stroke, cancer, kidney disease, accidents are all much higher on the list of killers. In other words, terrorism accounts for just a tiny, tiny fraction of all deaths. So let me ask, how many of you are worried you or someone in your family will become a victim of terrorism? Let me see a show of hands on this one. A couple. According to a CNN poll, again, just a few weeks ago, here's the percentage of Americans who are worried, 51 percent. Get a grip, people. (laughs) So what I'm suggesting is that the attention we pay to the news media has costs. Here's a recent estimate. The war on terror has cost U.S. taxpayers nearly $1.7 trillion. And those costs will continue. Terrorism is now the public's number one policy priority ahead of the economy. And by the way, this poll was taken almost a year ago, long before the more recent attacks in Paris and San Bernardino. The thing is, we're pouring enormous resources into fighting terrorism because we're terrified. And it's fueled by the news media. As Obama said recently, look, the media is pursuing ratings. If you've been watching TV for the last month, all you've been seeing is these guys with masks or black flags who are potentially coming to get you. It's important for us to keep things in perspective. This is not an organization that can destroy the United States. But the drumbeat will continue, because news is driven by ratings, and ratings are driven by fear. You can see that in the top news stories of 2015, which were listed just a few weeks ago. Six of the top 10 stories are about violence in one form or another, covering terrorism from Paris to San Bernardino, or gun violence from Baltimore to Charleston. And the rest of the top stories are about things we're encouraged to be afraid of, from refugees to climate change, to a changing society, to Republicans. (laughs) It's not an accident that the news media chooses these stories. The thing is, we're actually wired to respond to threats. We're fascinated by bad news, and we tend to ignore good news. Last year, a news site in Russia decided to print only good news for a day. You know what happened? They lost two-thirds of their readers. Nobody in journalism is going to try that experiment again in a hurry. Fear is what turns us into a captive audience hooked on the next shocking story they'll bring us tonight at 11. That's the real media bias, not liberal or conservative, but if it bleeds, it leads. So in the face of that, how do you figure out what's really going on? How do you find the long news? Well, I have three suggestions. First, when you see a news story, ask yourself this question, will this matter a year from now? you'd be surprised by how seldom the answer is yes. And even more so if you ask the long now question, will this matter 10,000 years from now? Second, as Michael Shermer suggests, follow the trend lines, not the headlines. If you know flying is 50 times safer than it was in the 70s, maybe you won't feel the need to think about one plane crash for 43 days. And third, don't get caught up in the cycle of fear. Shutting down the city of Boston for a week-long manhunt might have been overkill, don't you think? Just because the story's on the front page doesn't mean it's important. I'd like to suggest that you look for the long news, stories that give you clues about trends, show you where we're headed, might even help you predict the future. In the late 50s, there was an artist named Arthur Radbaugh who drew his predictions. He missed on some. We still don't have flap-wing fly cars. And so far, we don't have mining on the moon. But even so, things are better than you think. And I'm going to take the rest of my time to show you why I believe that. I'm going to share some news stories that illustrate, or at least suggest, nine trends. So let's turn to the first trend. Here's a question from Hans Rosling. In the past 25 years, do you think global poverty almost doubled, stayed the same, or was cut by two-thirds? How many think it was A? B? C. Different from what the poll will show across America, because across the US, about 65 percent choose A. But you guys were right, the real story is C. That's my first trend. We are getting wealthier. Globally, we've lifted about a billion people out of extreme poverty in the last 15 years. In 1981, 53% of the world population was living in poverty. Now it's down to 10%. And that decline in poverty really started two centuries ago. This chart is from Max Roser's amazing project, Our World and Data. Looking backwards, if you were born in 1820, you had a 94% chance of living your entire life in poverty. Looking forward, just 15 years from now, poverty is projected to drop to under 5% of the global population. And the global middle class keeps growing. It's now nearly a billion strong. We've made enormous progress, but that isn't what gets reported. As I'm sure you've noticed, most of the economic news in the past decade has been about the terrible state of the economy. Even this past summer, we were seeing a lot of headlines like this. Eight signs a global market crash is imminent. Here's the long news. The most recent recession was just a blip. Even the Great Depression was just a blip. Of course, GDP isn't everything, and if you lost your job or your home in the last recession, you might have trouble seeing the bright side. But the fact is, we are a zillion times wealthier than we used to be. Or to be more precise, here in the US, we're 23 times better off than we were 200 years ago. It's not just that we're more productive, we've also gotten wealthier because so many things have gotten cheaper. This is the cost of lighting as we went from candlelight to whale oil to electricity, which is why our world looks like this at night. In the 1500s, a peasant would have had just one shirt, two at the most. Why? Because they were so expensive. Before automation, making a shirt took 400 hours of spinning, 72 hours of weaving, and seven hours of sewing, which meant shirts cost the equivalent of $3,500. By 1960, the average American could buy 25 pieces of clothing a year, which cost them 10% of their income. Now we buy 68 items, and it only takes 3% of our income. In other words, you get three times as many items for a third of the cost. In 1915, it took two years of work to buy a new car. Now it takes about six months. A wall-to-wall television used to be a science fiction fantasy. Now, not only does it exist, but the cost of big-screen TVs keeps falling. When the first 50-inch TV came out, it cost about $20,000. Last year at Walmart, you could get one for 218 bucks. And while things have been getting cheaper, work has been getting easier. Most work used to be backbreaking because most people had to work on farms. This is the share of the labor force working in agriculture. It used to take 75% of the population to feed us, now it takes less than 2%. And as recently as a century ago, the second most common job title after farmer was domestic worker because before washing machines, simply doing the laundry for an average family took two days a week. So goods are cheaper, labor is, more lab- is less laborious, and though it may not feel like it, we're working fewer hours a week than ever before, about 30 hours less everywhere in the developed world. As Henry Blodgett notes, to summarize human progress over the past 150 years, we saved ourselves around 30 hours of work per week, and we now spend those hours watching television. <laughs> now, as I've been talking, I'm sure you've been thinking of a countertrend. There's been a lot of discussion about income inequality. Summed up in this headline, poverty is falling faster than ever, but the 1% are racing ahead. But who is the 1%? Well, if you make more than $32,400 a year, like the average US school teacher or delivery driver, you're in the top 1% globally. Okay, let's move on to our second trend. We're getting healthier. In the past century, we've cut the rate of deaths in half, mostly by eliminating a huge percentage of infectious diseases. More of us are dying today of cancer and heart disease because we're now living long enough to get them. There are signs of this progress everywhere. There's been a dramatic fall in measles. We've almost wiped out polio. In fact, today, children in sub-Saharan Africa are more likely to survive to age five than English children born in 1918. And modern medicine keeps producing miracles. Here are a few just from this past year. There's now a stem cell therapy to reverse multiple sclerosis. A nanorobots trial began in humans. It targets leukemia cells without harming healthy tissue. They found that ultrasound can restore memory in mice with Alzheimer's. Of the mice that got the treatment, 75% got their memory back. Another experiment with mice reported just a few weeks ago, gene editing completely cured muscular dystrophy. And researchers are closing in on printing a 3D heart valve. Donor shortages could be a thing of the past. Here's a gadget that tests for AIDS using an iPhone. There's a new drug that's 100% effective at preventing HIV. Finally, less than a year after it was one of the scariest stories in the news, we seem to have found a cure for Ebola. But if you just pay attention to the front pages, this might have been the most widely reported health news story of 2015. Bacon, ham, and sausages, as big a cancer threat as smoking. Um, Not so much. The long news is you can eat bacon every day, and your lifetime risk of colon cancer may go from 5% to 6%. Not quite as good a headline. Still, there are a few negative health trends to keep an eye on. In the U.S., guns are now killing as many people as cars. The toll of traffic accidents is rising in poor countries. Global cigarette consumption is climbing. Cigarettes still kill about 5 million people a year. Plus, smoke from cookstoves is killing almost as many people as cigarettes. Indoor air pollution is putting 3 billion people at risk of an early death. And obesity is still on the rise. It can cut 14 years off your lifespan. Believe it or not, it's now killing three times as many as malnutrition. So if you care about global health, there's still work to be done. I mentioned a while ago that we're now living long enough to get cancer and heart disease. That's our third trend. We are living longer. In Roman times, the average life expectancy at birth was about 22 years. You might live longer, but you had to be lucky. By 1900, the average life expectancy at birth had gone way up. Now it was about 30. But since 1950, life expectancy has gone from 47 to 70 for everyone on the planet. In the US, it's approaching 80. It's 83 in Japan. Here's another way of looking at it. Compared to a century ago, each of us has now been granted more than two lifetimes. Meanwhile, the number of centenarians has doubled, and two-thirds of the babies born this year may well be alive a century from now. The thing is, there's every reason to believe this trend of increasing life expectancies will continue. And if it does, we may have to confront a new question. Do you want to live to 120, assuming you could remain reasonably healthy? How many of you want to live that long? How many of you don't? In a US poll, 56% said they wouldn't want to, but 68% thought most other people would. (laughs) And there's even a growing movement asking another question, can we live forever? You might dismiss this out of hand if there weren't some very serious people putting some very serious money behind it. Google started a company called Calico with a billion and a half in funding to develop drugs that will tackle aging as if it were just another disease. Craig Venter, who sequenced the human genome, has a new startup that's hacking life. It's called Human Longevity. A few months ago, Obama proposed a database of a million people an initiative to look for clues to health and aging in our DNA. And some of this research is already bearing fruit. A few weeks ago, anti-aging genes were discovered in centenarians. This is happening now because it's less and less expensive to gather the data, and we're getting better at genetic engineering. In fact, over the summer, some scientists in the UK applied for a license to edit genes in human embryos. They're working on engineering the perfect baby. At MIT, they're saying edited humans are 10 to 20 years away. So, how many of you think it would be okay to modify a baby to make it more intelligent? How about to reduce the risk of serious diseases? In the US, 83% say no. They think modifying genes to make a baby more intelligent is going too far. But it's an even split when the gene modification is to reduce the risk of diseases. So it's gonna be interesting to see how public attitudes shift as the technologies become more available. I'm now going to talk about a trend some people have a hard time agreeing with me on. I believe peace and justice are spreading in the world. How many of you think this is true? Steven Pinker writes, most people fall prey to a cognitive illusion and assess the world from headlines rather than data. As long as violence has not vanished altogether, there will always be enough explosions and gunfire to fill the news, while a vastly greater portion of the planet in which people live boringly peaceful lives is reporter-free and invisible. But why are our lives more peaceful? Here's one reason. This is the number of democracies around the world. More than half the world's population now lives in a democracy, and democracies don't usually attack each other. Partly as a result, worldwide battle deaths are on the downswing. Only one trans-border war occurred in 2013. In fact, Pinker has shown that violence of all kinds is on the decline everywhere you look. Child abuse has dropped sharply in the U.S. This is what that looks like in a chart. Gun violence is at the lowest levels since the 60s. This is part of why we find violence so shocking today and why the news media reports on it wherever it occurs in the world. Of course, there are conflicts over religion, over ethnicity, over concepts of right and wrong. Neo-Nazi activity is on the rise. There are also hate crimes against Muslims and Christians. One of our leading presidential candidates has called for barring Muslims from entering the US. Saudi Arabia recently held an all-male women's rights conference. (laughs) I hope they discuss this. The UN reveals alarmingly high levels of violence against women. More than one in three women worldwide has experienced physical violence or rape. But despite these ills and many others, I'd argue we're slowly making progress. In areas like gender, rape has declined about 20% in the US in the past decade. The number of women lawmakers globally has doubled. And this is the world's percentage of women in executive roles, legislators, senior officials, and managers, slow, but progress. Finally, the gender wage gap has been cut in half, but the bad news is that may be partly because of men's declining wages. What about race? Well, in the US, racism is actually waning. A recent study shows that every generation of Americans has grown more tolerant of people with views and lifestyles that differ from their own. With one exception, Americans are less tolerant of people with racist beliefs. (laughs) Here's the decline in segregationist attitudes. Blue is the percentage of whites who say they would move if a black family moved next door. And as for gay rights, This map shows where homosexuality is illegal. In the countries marked in black, it still gets you the death penalty. And yet Ireland, one of the most Catholic countries on earth, just voted to change their constitution to make gay marriage legal. And in the US, most Americans and the Supreme Court now support same-sex marriage. As I'm sure you'll agree, these developments would have been unthinkable as recently as a decade ago. Okay, we've looked at trends in wealth, health, longevity, and social justice. Now I want to talk about what we're doing to the planet. This is trend five. For better or worse, we are changing the world. They're calling the time we live in the Anthropocene, the age of humans. Geologists can now see signs of the start of the Industrial Revolution in ice cores and rock formations. What does the age of humans look like? Well, here's a shift that happened just last year half the world population now lives in cities. By 2050, that number will reach 70%. These are the cities which will have more than 10 million people in the year 2030. As a result, there's more building going on than ever before in history. China used more concrete in the past three years than the US used in the entire 20th century. And because of all the building we're doing, and better building codes, even in places like China, there's another surprising trend. Natural disasters used to be so much worse. In the past century, the death rate from natural catastrophes dropped by 97 percent. And there's been an amazing decline in deaths from extreme weather. Since 1950, it's dropped from 433,000 people to 27,500. The built world is a safer world, but the Anthropocene has consequences. We are polluting our oceans, Eight million tons of plastic are dumped in the ocean every year. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is now twice the size of the continental U.S. We've wiped out half the world's wildlife since 1960. And we're polluting the atmosphere. CO2 levels are now over 400 parts per million. In China, air pollution is killing 4,000 people a day. Some are actually buying cans of fresh air from Canada. Every indicator we have... We have says mankind is changing the climate. The sea level north of New York City jumped by five inches last year. Researchers have linked the Syrian conflict to a long drought that's been made worse by climate change. So far, just in Syria, the conflict has displaced 14 million people. Globally, we're experiencing the worst refugee crisis in history. This past summer, 60 million people were fleeing. By 2050, Some estimates say rising sea levels will disrupt two to three hundred million people. And by the end of the century, half a billion people could be displaced. So the refugee problem is likely to be with us for a long time. The red dots are the megacities that may be underwater by the end of the century. Red on this chart is where agricultural yields will decline in the next 35 years. This is NASA's projection of drought in North America over the next century. Here's a National Geographic map of the last 15 years. Arctic ice is retreating 12% a decade. But the politics of trying to solve this global problem are challenging. This is a sculpture by a Spanish artist that's called Politicians Discuss Global Warming. <laughs> Unfortunately, it isn't entirely a joke. Just a few months ago, officials in Florida banned the term climate change. That'll solve the problem. And the US Senate voted that climate change isn't caused by humans. Next, maybe they'll vote that the Earth is actually flat. But if you look hard, you can find some good news. Politicians from around the world did sign a climate agreement in Paris last month. That's news that's likely to matter decades from now. And just a few weeks ago, we learned that global CO2 emissions actually dropped in 2015. And despite deforestation, the world actually added vegetation in the last decade. The U.S. has more trees than it had a century ago. Still, if we want to solve climate change once and for all, it would probably be a good idea to wean ourselves off coal and oil. So that's trend six. We're finding new sources of energy. A few examples. First, thanks to fracking, U.S. carbon emissions are at their lowest levels in 20 years. Although there's no free lunch, it seems to be causing earthquakes and high levels of benzene in water supplies. Meanwhile, globally, renewables are already generating about 10% of our power, and wind wind installations were up 42% in 2014. Last year, China added 18 gigawatts of solar power. That's basically the size of the entire U.S. solar industry. But U.S. solar is also doing well. Jobs are growing at 20 times the national rate, partly because the price of solar panels has dropped by a factor of hundred. And the boom is to, expected to continue. Just a few weeks ago, Congress extended the tax credit for renewables. So at this rate, it looks like renewables may produce 20% of our power 15 years from now, and about a third by 2050. And we're making better use of the energy we have. Energy efficiency is making a big difference. It looks like this, while US GDP has doubled since 1970, energy use and CO2 emissions have stayed flat. As I understand it, that's mostly conservation. And at the fringes of the energy business, there's some crazy experiments going on. I'll mention just three. Last year, the world's first wave power station was connected to the electrical grid in Australia. Tesla is launching a battery that's being called a game changer for the grid. It can store solar energy for use at night. And the National Ignition Facility, which I was lucky to visit a while back with a group from the Long Now, has achieved record energies. What that means is we seem to be making progress towards creating fusion energy, basically man-made solar power. And what about nuclear power? How many of you are in favor of us using more nuclear power? And how many of you are opposed? Well, my bias is I'm with Stuart Brand. I think it's a shame we don't use more nuclear power, because I think this is another case where fear, driven by the media, hasn't done us any favors. Do you remember April 7, 2011? The second biggest news story of that year. It was the Japan earthquake. Biggest quake Japan's ever seen, caused a devastating tsunami, but the narrative quickly became all about the explosion at the Fukushima nuclear plant. This is how it was reported. Fukushima, a nuclear threat to Japan, the U.S., and the world. Thousands staged anti-nuclear protests in Tokyo and around the globe. Germany announced they'd shut down their entire nuclear industry, even though nuclear generates 22 percent of their electricity. Again, I ask, where's the long news? 16,000 people died in the flooding at Fukushima. To this day, not one has died because of the meltdown at the nuclear plant. In fact, there are barely any signs of health risks, even among the 167 people who were working at the plant. This is the death rate of various types of power. That little tiny box is nuclear. Nevertheless, out of fear, Germany is switching their energy production from nuclear back to coal, and as a result, they're missing their own goals. Carbon emissions are climbing again. And the fear-mongering continues. Just about six months ago, Four years after the accident, this headline appeared in Canada. Fukushima radiation has reached North American shores. Here's how scared you should be. If you swam in the Vancouver Bay six hours a day for a 1,000 years, you'd have the same radiation exposure as one dental x-ray. So why was this even a news story? Fear, right? But the pendulum swings, I happen to think this next headline was good news. Four years after Fukushima, Japan considers restarting their nuclear facilities. On to trend seven. We are getting smarter. This is years of education per person globally since 1950. Look what's happened in Africa. In 60 years, the continent went from less than two years of schooling for most people to around seven years of schooling for most people. Globally, 70% of youth is now literate. The adult literacy rate, globally, is around 86 percent. But more often, you'll see headlines like this, the world fails to reach millennium education targets. Yes, there's work to be done, but headlines like this miss the real story. Unfortunately, there's definitely work to be done in the US. Students are sliding in global rankings, not even cracking the top 20 in math, reading, or science. But even so, education is spreading, And as a result, globally, IQ scores are getting steadily higher. Since 1950, they've gone up 20 points. That's a huge jump. And there are signs of intelligence everywhere if you look for them. There are more museums in the U.S. than there are Starbucks and McDonald's combined. (laughs) And it isn't just that people are getting smarter. Here's trend A. Our technology is getting smarter as well. Compare where we are to where we were 50 years ago. Today, your cell phone has more computer power than all of NASA back in 1969 when it sent two astronauts to the moon. What that means is, in Africa today, a Maasai warrior on a smartphone has better access to information than the president did just 15 years ago. And that Maasai warrior probably does have a phone. Cell phone ownership in Africa is approaching U.S. levels. There are now more mobile devices than people in the world so that today more people have access to cell phones than toilets. We take this kind of progress for granted, but it raises a real question. How has this happened? Well, here's a photo from 1956. IBM ships a five megabyte hard drive. (laughs) But then came Moore's Law. As Kevin Kelly says, 500 years ago, technologies were not doubling in power and halving in price every 18 months. This is what that means. In 1956, a gigabyte of storage cost $10 million. Now it's under nine cents. What does that look like? Literally it looks like this. This is the evolution of the game character Lara Croft from 1996 to last year. The game machine you have at home today is literally millions of times better at rendering the character in real time. It used to take hundreds of people to create a computer animated film. This clip was made by one artist in Australia working by himself. Computing power is exploding. Information is exploding. Today, the world's data is doubling every two years. And a lot of that data is images. Consider this. This is the number of cameras sold worldwide. This is what happens when you include the cameras in cell phones. The bar is in yellow. Actually, it looks like this. And what about video? All of Hollywood now produces about 1,000 hours of film every year. That's how much video is uploaded to YouTube every hour. All that information is spreading. These are devices connected to the Internet. And this is how quickly the Internet is adding users. This is an image of part of the Internet, and this is an image of part of the human brain. And this is the remarkable thing reported back in 2012. All the digital data in the world is now equivalent to one human brain. Another way of saying it, all the computers in the world put together can now run as many calculations per second as the number of nerve impulses that happen inside your head. But remember, computing power is doubling every year, so computers will be able to match all of mankind by the year 2045, 30 years from now. Artificial intelligence is already making big strides. Some recent examples, Google scanned 10 million video thumbnails and the computer figured out all on its own that a bunch of them were images of cats. (laughs) Another program now outperforms humans in image recognition. It can tell the difference between a Pembroke Corgi and a Cardigan Corgi. I can't. (laughs) Meanwhile, Skype will translate speech in real time while you're on a conference call. It knows 50 languages so far. And without any instruction, a computer taught itself to play video games. It can already beat almost any human. This past summer, another computer taught itself to play chess at the master level. What about interfaces between humans and machines? Yes, there's the Apple Watch, but there are even closer connections. Last summer, a paralyzed man was given a prosthetic hand that can feel. A man controls his bionic leg with his thoughts. Another man controls a cybernetic hand again with his thoughts. And this is a more recent example from a few months ago. He's controlling it with his brain. A paralyzed woman has flown a fighter jet simulation using only her mind. Scientists are reading dreams using brain scans. By wiring you up, they can now get information about what's going on inside your head, even what you're looking at. On the left, what the person is looking at, and on the right, what the computer reconstructs from brain scans. This is partly why Ray Kurzweil says humans will be hybrids by 2030. In fact, DARPA is already testing implanted brain chips. And Stephen Hawking says it's theoretically possible to copy the brain onto a computer and so provide a form of life after death. He thinks it'll happen in 15 to 20 years. But on the other hand, he also thinks the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. So not all the news is good. Which leads to the last trend we'll discuss today. We were replacing ourselves with machines. And frankly, I don't think anyone knows how this will play out. Let's start by talking about a new kind of robot, the car that drives itself. The thing is, there's a software bug in cars, the driver. Every year, that leads to 10.8 million crashes, 2.3 million injuries, 32,000 deaths in the US alone. Globally, cars kill 1.24 million people every year. And 94% of those crashes are due to human error. Those red diamonds are car crashes in L.A. during one rush hour. That's why L.A. drivers spend 90 hours a year stuck in traffic. In the U.K., motorists spend 106 days of their lives looking for parking spots. So there are a lot of reasons that self-driving cars make sense. But the real question is, how soon will your car drive itself? Do you think it's within 10 years, 10 to 25 years, or more than 25 years? Who thinks it's A.? B, C. This group is much more optimistic than most audiences. (laughs) According to Morgan Stanley, self-driving cars will be commonplace within the decade. And a McKinsey study says almost every car on the road will be self-driving within 25 years. It's already happening. An autonomous car just completed a road trip from San Francisco to New York. Self-driving cars will be in road tests in 30 U.S. cities by the end of this year. Autonomous buses will hit Swiss streets this spring. And self-driving trucks just got approved in Nevada. At the Rio Tinto mine in Australia, they have 900 self-driving trucks hauling iron ore 24 hours a day. But you know what the number one job category in America is? Truck driver. If you add bus drivers and taxi drivers, that's a total of six million jobs. Those jobs are going away. But here's the thing, it's not just drivers we're gonna replace with robots. A recent report suggests nearly half of US jobs are vulnerable to computerization. Well, it's not as bad as that. The number is actually only 47%. But that's within the next decade or two. Another report out of Australia says that 60% of students are chasing jobs that may be rendered obsolete. That's okay, students may be replaced too. We recently learned about an algorithm that answers SAT geometry questions at the level of an 11th grader. The robot invasion is already happening. In food service, a Chinese restaurant owner has ditched his human waiters for robots. A robot butler is making room service deliveries. Robot bartenders, this new cruise ship has them. Sorry, guys. What about robot housemaids? Not only do they exist, They're teaching themselves to cook by watching YouTube. (laughs) Deliveries, we don't have rocket mailmen yet, but earlier this year, Amazon got approval to start drone deliveries in the UK, and the FAA has approved testing in the US. Security, robots are replacing traffic police in the Congo. There's a 300 pound robot security guard. Meanwhile, Samsung has unveiled a robot sentry that can kill from two miles away. Earlier last year, a British British robot mapped the radiation at Fukushima. What about logistics? For example, robot warehouses. Amazon again? They've already deployed 10,000 robot workers. And in China, Foxconn is buying a million robots. And NASA plans to use robots to build the next generation space station. Maybe mining on the moon actually is closer than we think. Then there are the jobs you'd think only humans can do. But if we have self-driving cars, there's no reason to think we can't have self-driving airplanes. Maybe it's time for robot pilots. But they probably won't look like this. (laughs) Why hire a lawyer when computers are cheaper? In a recent liability case, one reviewed two million documents all by itself. Scientists aren't safe. A robot scientist has discovered a malaria drug after screening thousands of molecules looking for a fit. How about making investment decisions? Last year, a venture fund added an algorithm to its board with an equal vote. <laughs> Telcos are replacing call center staff with Watson. In fact, Gartner predicts that by 2020, four years from now, customers will manage 85% of their relationship with the enterprise without interacting with a human. IBM wants the FDA to let Watson diagnose patients. Eventually, we may not need the doctor at all, or the surgeon been to the hospital lately, the robo-surgeon will see you now. Even journalists are are at risk. Sports recaps are being written by robots, though, again, I'm not sure the robots will understand behavior like this. Finally, it's not just human jobs at risk. Who needs a sheepdog when you've got a drone? So should we be worried? Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) But more seriously, think about the 75% of the population that used to work on farms. All of them found new jobs. A Deloitte study looking at 140 years of data says technology has created more jobs than it has destroyed. And there's one sure way that humans can stay employed, building robots. Robotics is now the fastest growing industry in the world, and it's on track to be the largest in a decade. But still, a lot of people believe this time is different, that humans will be replaced faster than we can create new jobs. So what happens then? Jan Tallinn, one of the founders of Skype, says, in the long run, we should think about how to organize society around something other than near-universal employment. And Mark Andreessen, who invented the first web browser, has written, posit a world in which all material needs are provided free by robots. Imagine six or 10 billion people doing nothing but arts and sciences, culture and exploring and learning. What a world that would be. If any of you has a good idea about how to accomplish that, the world wants to know. So I've talked about nine trends, and now I'd like to make a prediction. My prediction is simply that all of these trends will continue. That's the long news. You'll find it in the trend trend lines, not the headlines. Because the headlines will just keep focusing on the same fear-driven stories that get you to keep reading. In September, the Wall Street Journal put the Malaysia Airlines story back on the front page when part of the plane was found 509 days after the crash, and again on day 516, as if, again as if this was one of the most important things going on in the world. Maybe this relentless focus on the negative is why people tend to be discouraged about our progress. Here's a drawing from 1900 of what the year 2000 might hold. As Peter Thiel put it, we were promised flying cars, All we got are 140 characters. Well, we may not have flying cars, but as of about a month ago, we have jetpacks. We live in amazing times. Here's a quote from Warren Buffett that sums it up. Throughout my lifetime, politicians and pundits have constantly moaned about terrifying problems facing America. Yet our citizens now live in astonishing six times better than when I was born. The prophets of doom have overlooked the all-important factor that is certain. Human potential is far from exhausted. We are not natively smarter than we were when our country was founded, nor do we work harder. But look around you and you see a world beyond the dreams of any colonial citizen. Now, as in 1776, 1861, 1932, and 1941, America's best days lie ahead. So to sum up, if you remember just one thing from my talk, I hope it's this. No, not the snow melter with twin power plants and flame throwing jets, even though the chalkboard robot thinks that would be awesome. <laughs> Seriously, what I really want you to remember is this things are better than you think. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you Kirk and uh, I'd like to welcome Alexander Rose, our executive director, to the stage for the Q&A
1: Thanks
0: scoot over here so you're on camera um,
2: thank you very much. I, I think it was almost nine or ten years ago when yeah. you kind of walked in with this idea around long news, which then we've uh, you know we've done a few things on it and then you did a TED talk on it and it's really great to get an update on it I think the um, The idea of bringing in the trends that Pinker and others are also showing is a is an interesting one because he was showing the kind of mega trends that are going very far back in time. Um, But they always, you know, it always feels, you know, when it feels like things are getting, you're, you know, you're wealthy if you're a a UPS driver, you're in the top one percent of the world. It's still if you live in San Francisco, of course, that thirty seven thousand dollars doesn't go as far. Right. Um, So there's always that scaling thing and I wonder. Uh, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Is um, you know when you're when we are looking at the megatrends, how do we deal with our
1: our hyperlocal problem? Um, that's a, that's a great question. The the way I think about it is, if I were it's I, I can't remember the philosopher, but if I were to choose to be born at any moment in the last ten thousand years. I would choose to be born today. My chances of not being in poverty, my chances of having a chance to make more of myself would be better today than at any time in history. To not die of a bacterial infection. Exactly, yes. yeah. I mean, so, so yes, There are the thing you're talking about is true. There are local issues, but if you look at, I, my talk is basically about what's happening globally, and what's happening globally is really great. I think yeah
2: no i mean I, uh, your fukushima example is an amazing one i think the uh, i remember the day after the tsunami there turns out one of the things that happened during that earthquake is that a major piece of power infrastructure was destroyed that killed thousands of people in fukushima right and it was a dam right it was a it was a you know it was a piece of the of the very of a zero carbon uh, <laughs> emitting infrastructure that broke during that earthquake and killed a whole valley full of people right before the tsunami came in the other way. Right. Um, and it was only reported as near as I could tell by the hydro journal, uh, <laughs> you know, this like industry rag, even though it was you know one of the largest dam disasters ever. Right. Yet Fukushima got all the attention. And as you point out, nobody right. died. Right. Uh, do you have any questions from the audience? I'm going to repeat them for the uh, audience at home. In the back. So the, the question... I can capture it correctly is um, both you know we have a bias towards negative information but it turns out also there's a there's a shift in that bias based on liberal or conservatives and are you saying that the, the conservatives were more triggered by negative information was that that study that you're pointing to
0: yes okay yes.
2: Okay and so yeah, so how I, I, does that fit into this?
1: I think that's a, that, I think that's really interesting. I've read some of it, but I'm not an academic, and ha, I'm not up on all those studies. but the the part that I have read about is does have to do with we're, we're much faster at seeing threats than we are at seeing things that aren't threats. so th- it, that is wiring that's just be, and it makes sense it's like if you come around a corner and there's a stick on the ground and you think it's a snake, that isn't a big risk. But if it's a snake and you think it's a stick, you know, that would be a mistake. So we're kind of biased towards seeing things as threats quickly and re- reacting viscerally to that. That's, but that's as much as I know about it. That, some of the other stuff that you talked about, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with.
2: And I think it's an interesting point. I think what is very odd is that I don't think there's anyone in this room. If you really thought about your day-to-day life, would trade life in the good old days, whether it was 50 years or 100 years ago, if you went through what that daily life was like. Right. Yet that good old days notion still pervades, and we still, you know, as you pointed out in this, in the statistics, we're we're looking for. Most people are thinking the future is this much more dismal place when. All evidence is to the contrary. Right. Um, I, I wonder what you think some of the motivations are for that, I, I wonder if, you know, is it, a, is it a good for humans to think the future is bad because we will constantly try and make it better? Is that a good <laughs> thing?
1: You just blew my whole talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very possibly. Very plausibly. I mean, the fact that things are getting better doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep working to make them better. And as you pointed out- yeah, What is the motivating local, factor that makes them better? Right. And, and local, there are local issues. You know, whether you're at San Francisco or whether you're looking at the US, or you're looking at whatever you're looking at, you can see that joy and, you know, positivity hasn't rained down on everyone. And so the idea is, can we spread, spread the good things that are happening? Right. And you did
2: mention the refugee crisis, which actually, I'll just put a plug in, we do have a, a talk uh, with a panel on the refugee crisis that is going on, so that'll be coming up uh, soon. Uh, right over here. Uh,
1: Let you me know, just
2: repeat that question real quick. What, yeah, what, what, what do you attribute this larger positive trend to?
1: Well, this is, this is probably a safe place to say this, but I'm a geek. <laughs> and so I think that the invention of science had an enormous amount to do with it. And if, if you look at, you know, there were 10,000 years of history where most of the trends didn't go up very much. And then about 200 or 250 years ago when science came along, things have been getting better since. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I probably also think capital markets help. I, I, there are other things that, that help, but I'm, if I had to pick one thing, it'd be, it'd be the invention of science.
2: You have a question from the internets?
1: So, it, so
2: yeah. So the question. This is from somebody on the on the on the live stream. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So uh, what you cannot see on the live stream uh, is the uh, picture that Otto drew, which is uh, one of the uh, which was traced off of one of the things that Kurt gave us. Uh which is it's
1: just a uh, it's it's a uh, cartoon that was in late '50s, early '60s. A guy named Arthur Radabaugh. Had this series called "Closer Than We Think," and he was drawing his predictions of what the future looked like. And if you Google Arthur Radabaugh images, uh, you'll you'll see a lot of them. There's there's 50 or 60 that are very cool. He's he's just. We'll put that in Twitter so they
0: can yeah. see it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think what's
0: also
2: interesting about these things, and so in fact, I have mm. a, I have a little collection of books on these shelves behind my desk that. Um, are all uh, books of bad predictions. <laughs> and what's the most interesting thing to me about that is there are no books of good predictions. Uh, interesting. So predictions that came true are not interesting to people. Right. They're not, uh, you know, they're, Arthur, they're a, Because when, yeah. when they come true, everyone's like, yeah, of course that came true. Right. But when it's, you know, when it's the jetpack thing, everyone's like, why don't we have jetpacks? Right. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, over here. So the question is, uh, do all these trends actually make us happier?
1: I, you know, I don't. I haven't actually looked into that, and I haven't seen research on that. Um, other than I've, I read not long ago that so there was some theory that if you make up to seventy-five thousand dollars, your happiness improves, and then beyond that, it doesn't. And that got debunked. So that um, increasing material wealth at any level makes you happier. So. That, that's all. That's the only little piece of data that I have about that.
2: Nice, uh, right here. Yes, you in the ears. Yeah. So yeah. So the question is: Is uh, more advice on what exactly to pay attention to uh, climate change versus plane accidents?
1: You know, I, I've since we we started having, as you said, we started having this conversation eight or nine years ago, and so. I've just sort of developed a filter of looking for stories that have longer term implications and just grabbing them as i as I see them. Um, and that's kind of what I'm recommending to you as well is just to maybe tune down the listen, i'm a, I'm actually a news junkie. i I read the paper. I read a couple of papers, cover to cover every day. But I think of it as entertainment. I think of it as, you know, some people follow sports. I follow the news. But I don't think it's important the same way I don't necessarily think sports is that important on a, you know, I shouldn't say that because we're in San Francisco. People, you can say that people, here. People, I can say yeah. that here. I'm safe to we say that here. We had a full here. house on, yeah. on the World Series weekend. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> but um, so, so I'm, not, I'm not exactly answering your question, but um, It just has to do with looking at the news kind of through a filter that this room would represent. Yeah, I mean, you could use the the technique
2: that my dad used
1: for for
2: horoscopes, is he would cut out his horoscope each day and he would put it face down, and at the end of the day, he would turn it over and look at it, see if it had already come true or not. So you could just do that and just hold the story down for a decade
0: (laughs) and see if it's worth
2: looking at again. So yeah, the question is how do how do we create better filters for you know less Kardashians, more climate change? Is that okay? Oh, so you don't just want to change the filters for, for when you say us, you don't mean us, you mean us more broadly? Yes.
1: Well, I I mean I think I think that's a problem. Uh, you know I I pointed out the new, the Russian news site that only printed good news. So so if you try those experiments, they're going to fail. Um, so, I and I I don't know, I don't have an answer for that. It's it's a really good question that I don't have an answer for. Does an education play Yeah, yeah edu- education Education is a good answer. Would that it does you help. Do we have any equal, well, we have lots of questions over in the
2: bar. Sorry, I haven't looked over here. Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I noticed on your bio, you were an advertising. Yes. So what role does an advertiser if wants to sort of tell a good story play in changing that business model? Do, does yeah, make so, Kirk has a, has a long history in advertising. Uh, and what role does that have to play?
1: I, I tell stories from an optimistic point of view. That's <laughs>
2: <laughs> Unless there's a part of your body that doesn't smell good. Right. Yes. Then you, then you say never negative things. Marty. So let me just grab that question. So what are your, actually, I, I don't think I can repeat that question very well. How about you ask that question again? What are your projections about Social cohesion going forward versus atomization and solipsism, where people just are self-contained, self-satisfied, and the social
1: fabric disappears. You know, Marty, that's a great, great question that I don't really have an off the top of my head answer to. Um, I think, I think it's going to be. You know, we're we're talking about. You know, kind of push-pull. I think both, both things, you're gonna see more of both things, and I would hope that it would end up in a place that we all like, but I'm not sure that it will. Uh, you know, the the last stuff I was talking about, about um, robots taking jobs or machines taking jobs, I'm worried about that because there are some people who are saying it's not gonna happen as fast, or you know, we're gonna replace jobs with other jobs, or people working with computers will will solve you know, there'll be plenty of jobs working with computers. I'm not sure that's true. And so I I worry about that, because I'm not sure that we can make that societal transition as easily as one would hope.
2: And speaking of those societal transitions, um, you know, we're coming up on one, depending on who you ask, somewhere in the next 30 to 50 years where the world's population will start declining for the first time as a global trend. Um, and it's already doing that in the developed world. Do you where where does where does that fit into the long news? I mean, there's, that's a that's a fundamental change of the last ten thousand years of humanity.
1: Uh, well, I I mean I think we're going to test the limits of what this planet can hold before we get there. So, yeah, the projections are that we'll get to maybe not. I've seen nine as a number. That's still, you know nine times as many people as we had 30 years ago. So I, I think we're gonna test the upper limits. Bef- coming down is a good thing. Um, well, it,
2: it kind of is, except for the fact that, I mean, that means that all those people that are left are, are globally older, and generally older people are not big contributors to society, and we've never lived in a world where there's less customers. All, all economies, generally, are based on growth. So I think there's a, there's a fundamentally different world than the one that we have lived in literally. I mean, there's a couple moments like the Black Plague where we didn't have increasing populations,
1: but it's. Um, I I question a couple of your premises in there, though. I I think older populations do not not contribute. I don't think it's true that- right now, less, I would say. Right, Uh, not true economically. If you look at where money is being spent over over 50 spends a lot more than under 50. Well, is that because of healthcare? care? Uh, that's a good question, I'm not sure the answer, I'm not sure the answer to that.
2: I don't, okay, so uh, sorry, we'll, we'll, take, we'll, we'll take one more from the bar area over there. So the, yeah, the beginning of the talk were all the trends that were getting better and the end of the talk was all the things that are actually long-term negative trends And yeah, is
1: there a symbiosis between those two things? Um, you know, I'm I'm short-term an optimist and I'm long-term an optimist. Um, I, I don't think global civiliza- civilization is going to collapse. I don't think humanity is going to go extinct. Um, I, I'm probably less worried about global warming than I probably should be, because uh, I think we're going to figure it out either through market forces or through technology. Um, I could be wrong about that, but uh, I I, I, I mostly think, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's Thomas Macaulay said, by what logic would we look forward and see only doom and gloom when if you look backwards, everything has gotten better in every, I'm paraphrasing what what the quote was. Um, I I see no reason to believe that things are going to, go downhill from here. Excellent, well, thank you very much for the update
2: on this project, that was fantastic. And the level of questions means I'm really hoping that we get a lot of discussion for the rest of this night. You're gonna hang out with us yeah. and drink heavily. <laughs> and, uh, and then I wanna make sure you get one of our challenge coins as a speaker here. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you all, really appreciate it. And thank you to
0: our audience on the stream, thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.